Welcome to the BDRN Life Podcast, where we teach life and leadership skills to teens and their parents. I'm your host, Hudson, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel. Today on the podcast, we are chatting with Mr. Kevin Hoffman. Mr. Kevin is an accomplished writer and speaker who has appeared across the United States and many media outlets, sharing his experience about culture and race. His book, Growing Up Black and White, talks about his experience growing up as an adopted African-American child in a white family. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Hoffman. Thanks for having me on, Hudson. Kevin, I really appreciate you talking to us. I've had you on my list of people that I wanted to one day interview for months. But with all that's going on in our country, I was talking to Keith last night and I said, this is something that we need to address. I don't want to be someone that totally pretends like nothing is happening. Let's see if we can get Kevin on. And so I sent you a message last night and here we are chatting and hoping to edit it and have it ready to go tomorrow. So thank you so much for being so flexible and willing to come on at the last minute. Uh, what a mess our country is in right now. I know a little bit of your story, and your start seems eerily familiar to what is going on right now. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and your beginnings? Yeah, so this summer will have will be 53 years since my story started. I am the result of an affair between a white woman and a black man who worked together in one of the auto plants in Detroit, Michigan in early 1967. They got together and for obvious reasons, my mother's white husband insisted that she give me up for adoption. And she did that. The interesting thing about the story, and like you said, so eerily similar to today is, I was born two weeks after the riot, the 67 riots in Detroit. And the most frustrating thing that I sit that sits with me today is 53 years ago this summer, we had riots for the exact same reasons we're having them now. The Detroit riots started because of police brutality that involved the black community. And it simply started one Sunday night, late, late July, and there was a black family who was celebrating two black soldiers who were coming home from the Vietnam War. So obvious way, you know, time to celebrate. They have this party at, at an illegal after hours bar. The police show up and their plan was to arrest everybody at the this party. What they didn't understand was that this party that they thought was going to have 10 to 15 people had like 70 or 80 people. And so as they're waiting for backup, that crowd spills into the neighborhood. The neighborhood, the people from the, this is in a black neighborhood, the people from that neighborhood spill out in the early morning, uh, late July. And that's when this confrontation began between the police. Uh, the National Guard was called in in Detroit. There were tanks that rolled up and down the biggest streets of Detroit at that time. And yeah, it's so, yeah, it's so depressing that we're sitting here 53 years later for the same frustration. It's like we never learned anything. No. Mm -mm. 
um, you experienced having a cross burning in your yard. How old were you when that happened? Yeah, so I was, so like I said, I was given up for adoption right away. It was actually my mother's job to transport me from the hospital to my first and only foster home. I stayed in that foster home for three months and I was adopted by a white family uh, who lived in Dearborn, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And back then, Dearborn was considered a closed community. And what that meant was that people of color weren't welcome in that community. Um, and so, yeah, when I was 11 months old in 1968, we woke up to a cross being, you know, a cross that had been set afire on our front yard. Have you talked to your mom recently? I know your dad has passed on about uh, it's all happening again. Have you had this conversation with her? Yes. I talked to my mom and sister and they were both at rallies today. Yeah. Yeah. Protests, marches today. Um, yeah. My mom has always had a heart for social justice, even before I was born. Um, and yeah, it was interesting. My mother and father used to protest uh, unfair housing laws. So those laws that that deemed certain communities not welcoming for families of color. Uh, so yeah, my parents would stand out and picket, you know, on the streets in Southeast Michigan in the '60s, protesting the unfairness of that. That right. you know, everyone should be able to live wherever they want to. That took a lot of guts back then. Yeah, exactly right. And they, as a white yeah, family, I, you know, yeah, and I, it, it lost a lot from that. They lost, you know, I, I say I gained a lot of privilege growing up in a white household, and my parents gave up a lot of privilege for welcoming this child of color into their household. They lost friends, business relationships. My dad was blacklisted from the church for several years, uh, and it all had to do with the fact that they just adopted this kid that had darker skin than most of the people they knew. That's so crazy. So you were never really accepted in your community or church? No, we never. We stayed in that church for three years. Um, and they really had a problem with that to the point where they tried to fire my dad because he brought me into their church and they didn't like that. And so eventually, I think my parents figured out that that community was going to change us before we changed it. And so we moved. We moved into Detroit, where we lived in a black neighborhood and all my friends were black. That's so sad, because church should be the one place where you're most accepted. Have, have you ever struggled with bitterness about all of that with the church? Not really, because just like now this is a great time for someone to be a hero and so when we were going through that when we were going through the church trying to fire my father when we were going through the cross being burned on our yard or you know little things like the beauticians refusing to cut my mother's hair because i was with her or when we went to the store to get a family photo and the photographer pointed to me and asked my mom if she wanted the little welfare baby mm. in the picture. I mean, we had things like that all the time. Um, but the great thing about Dearborn was 
part of that process of trying to fire my father was they had to bring in the the bishop of southeast michigan and it was his job to conduct this meeting after church on a sunday where anyone could level any accusation they wanted to at my father and so they did and for three hours my father had to sit in front of the church while they got up and just leveled these baseless accusations at him and then it was the bishop's job to get up and call for a vote and it was like survivor we were either going to be voted into the church or out and it was obvious we were going to be voted out and this is why it's so important that and man we're searching for this kind of hero today at that meeting the bishop's job was to just get up and tell the congregation we now need to take a vote instead he chastised that congregation challenged them to go back into their small groups and talk about the elephant that was roaming in the church that no one was talking about and he he never called for a vote and later that guy that bishop actually hired my father to be his assistant and so yeah i didn't have any bitterness because i had guys like this bishop who quite honestly i didn't even know most of this growing up and then when i found out about it i knew the bishop i just didn't know he was a bishop i remember him being around our family and what a you know kind guy he was um and so yeah i'm not bitter because you know we needed a hero and we got one and today we're looking for that same kind of hero that's a great way of putting it i heard you give the illustration on another podcast about tuning into a radio station can you right. say that illustration yeah. sure so often uh what you get as a person of color when you say something as simple as you know hey i think i was treated differently because of the color of my skin and oftentimes that gets dismissed so someone who doesn't experience that every day will say no you just got that wrong you're being too sensitive that's not right and so what i like to do is compare that to a radio station my, me and my wife always had this argument or we used to which is the whole physics conversation, which is, you know, the, the physics teacher will simply ask the question, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around, does it create a sound? And the physics answer is, you in physics, you have to have something that produces sound and something that receives it. If you don't have a receiver, there is no sound. And just like you and I are sitting here, we're not hearing music, but there are radio waves all around us. And if we were to turn on a radio or a receiver, we could hear though, we could hear that. We could tune into those. And so that's what I liken to the conversation of race and racism is for 53 years, I've been turned to one radio station. And so I can hear and see things that if you've never been tuned into this radio station, you can't hear and see it. And that's the struggle is we've got to get each other to understand where we're coming from. So one of the, the shirts I make, it's about diversity. And it says, if we see the world from different views, whose view is correct? And we can both be correct because it's our viewpoint. Right. And the beautiful thing about that when you're talking about diversity is if I don't only use the view I see things, but I use your view and your input, then that that protects me from the blind sides. It protects me from seeing things that I'm not trained to see. 
And so the analogy of the whole radio station is I've been tuned into a radio station so I can hear things that you may not even know about. That makes them very real to me. And so what we can't do in this conversation of race is dismiss somebody's experience. And that's what's happening over and over and over again, where the black community, we started off whispering, I can't breathe. Could you please tell the police, the police to back up? And then it keeps getting louder. I can't breathe. Tell them to back up to the point where we're screaming. And then you get one person that comes down and asks you, why are you screaming? I'm screaming because of the other 10 incidents you didn't see that happened to me that I'm not making up. Right. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I'm passionate about it, but I want people to see that my experience, I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up. There's statistics that back off all this stuff and just look at them, just look at the numbers. And there is an inequality in this society. Yeah, just because you don't have your radio on doesn't mean the station's not playing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's a great point. So, so you could say, yeah, that song's not playing. And I can turn it on and go, yeah, it is playing. So who's right? Right. And that, that's what the whole race and racism conversation comes down to. And unfortunately, what it comes down to is the majority says we're the norm so however we see things is how it should be yeah and that totally dismisses you know a person of color's experience the majority wins yeah unfortunately you kind of grew up in the middle of two worlds um Mm -hmm. did you feel like you ever fit in either of them yes i I encourage kids to do this all the time. So I speak a lot in in grade schools. And so, of course, for kids, it's just so important that you fit in. And so that was important to me as this child of color growing up in the schools that I went to from, you know, kindergarten to 12th grade were majority black, like 95% black. Um, And so I was always around kids that looked like me. And I always encourage kids, find your tribe. And that was my tribe. So I had these black kids and that we experienced life similarly. And so we could talk on the same level. And it could be as simple as me saying, um, man, I went to the store the other day and I think that cashier, she just treated me horribly and it was just because I was black. And all I needed and all we all want is to be heard and for someone to just go, yeah, man, you might be right. And that's all I needed. And then I'd be like, cool, let's go play basketball. (laughs) But I needed someone to hear me. Yeah. And that's why I encourage kids, just go find your tribe. Because they experience life as you do. And they will hear you. And so it was, man, it was so important. And it was life changing for me to grow up around kids that look like me. And that we all kind of really had similar experiences. I know I'm not totally like a similar situation like that because I've never been African-American, but I'm half Chinese. And I kind of felt that a little bit because I felt like I don't fit in with the Chinese people and I don't fit in with the white people. And I'm just kind of floating here. <laughs> um, yeah. 
you know, they we eat different food at our house. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I feel like I understand a tiny bit. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, it's thing. Not as much violence towards the Chinese as the right. African American. But yeah, but there's still some really damaging stereotypes that really each race has to deal with, and and how people respond to those is always interesting. Yeah, I was blessed as a little kid to be in a church. Um, we were in the South, South Carolina. And our pastor was so good. We were multicultural. Mm. And this was the early 70s, so kind of unique back then. Yeah. Uh, all of us kids were his kids, no matter what color they were. We, we were just one big tribe. Didn't matter what color we right. were. Right. Um, so I kind of had a confusing mixture of many cultures. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like many white people want to help, but they fear saying the wrong thing and it coming across the wrong way. Do you have any guidelines for how people can express their support? Yeah, so show up, but understand this. And this is often hard for what is often termed as, you know, do-gooders. So white people that want to do good. So many times white people are used to being in charge and in control. And so they want to be allies in this fight. Understand it's our fight. We appreciate your support, but sometimes that means you just show up and don't say anything. And for some people, that's really hard to do. But you've got to give it to, you know, those that we, again, we've been tuned into that radio station. We know, you know, when the commercial breaks are coming, we know what's about to happen. So we definitely need your support. I say this all the time that the civil rights never does what it does without the allies of white people simply because we as black people, we don't have the numbers to make the changes that need to be made. So yes, show up. You can show up at the protests. Like, man, there is nothing more beautiful than what I've seen lately, which is there have been several incidents at these protests where people have, and they call it weaponizing their white privilege. So you'll have a line of white people that stand between the police and people of color. And that is a very powerful thing that you are using and you're saying, I get it. I get there's an inequality here and that I can keep you safe if I stand in front of you. That to me has been one of the most powerful things I've seen recently. And I've seen that happen quite a bit where people are weaponizing their white privilege to protect and help black people. But understand it's this tricky walk because we don't always want that help. We can speak for ourselves, but we need your presence. And then the biggest thing when we're talking about race and racism is understand this is not a conversation to have with someone that you're in casual relationship with. 
you have to build a relationship with someone. It's like church. So I grew up in church and we would always say, how do you get those that don't believe to come into church? Well, you get into relationship with them. Then you talk about coming to church. It's the same with race. I can't have these deep racial conversations with, with white people that I'm not in relationship with. It's just too hard. Um, there's a, there's a keynote address that I do, and it's called Gimme Three Feet. And it talks about the importance of allowing all of us to just be in our own space and be who we can be. And the beautiful part of that speech is I share this friendship that I have with a good friend of mine that I've known since I was eight years old. So we've known each other for 41 years, I think, 45 years, 43 years. Um, and I remember he's white, tall, skinny, white kid. I was this short black kid, grew up across the street from each other. We had moved into a white neighborhood when I was eight years old. He became my best friend, talked to him pretty much every day. Uh, and I remember us playing and I wanted us to have this deeper relationship. He was a good friend of mine. And it was uncomfortable because I didn't know how to bring up the conversation of race. We never talked about it. And I'd known him at this point, I was probably 10 or 11. So I'd known him two or three years. And finally, I invited him in. And I said, man, it was something like, yeah, Mrs. Matz, that mean lady down the street. I think she picks on me a little more than everybody else because I'm black. And my good friend, and this first time we talk about race, he just simply said, yeah, I think you're kind of right. And then we just went about our business. But what that did was I invited him in and then it allowed him to see the world from a different view. And that has been my closest relationship that I've ever had. And But I couldn't have that. I can't have conversations like I have with my best friend, Mike, with just everybody, because I'm not in that kind of relationship with them. So, yeah, if you're asking how can you help, it means showing up understand you may not be on the front front line you may have to be in the back and let people of color take the lead understand you might your voice may not be needed and heard and that's okay but we need your presence there we need people to say yeah it matters yeah you know there's this this big debate about uh, Black Lives Matter, and then the retort to that is, well, all lives matter. Well, then join us in this fight and, and, and support us and show us that Black lives do matter. Because when we got someone's knee on someone's neck and he's begging for his own life, and there are people around you begging for his own life, it doesn't really seem like Black Lives Matter at that point. Right. We're an adoptive family. And we've been foster parents, you know, and I'd think about my little brown boys <laughs> growing up. Would they have to worry about wearing hoodies, you know, playing with squirt guns in the yard? Um, so I see I get where you're coming from. I, th I think I just need you to tell me, <laughs> you know, um, from a perspective of someone who is living it. Because I will never live that, right? Mm -hmm. um, what we can do to help and what 
would your question be, Hudson? What would you ask him? What can young people do to be part of the solution? It means understanding that things aren't always fair and that we shouldn't accept that. Like you hear that a lot. Like when there's an injustice and you say, man, that's not fair. Often the response is, well, life isn't fair. Well, but we have mechanisms in place to make things more fair. Um, so I think what younger kids can do to help, and you guys have an advantage we don't have is, we've got all this baggage that comes with this whole topic on race. Um, it just means you give each other that space to be who they wanna be. Um, in that talk, when I talk about uh, this keynote about give me three feet, I shared an experience when I was in kindergarten and I was an okay student and I had a good friend, his name was Richie. And me and Richie would go over each other's house and play together all the time. There was another kid in our kindergarten class who really struggled. Um, and so I think my mom wanted me and Richie to be a good influence on Joey. So then Joey became kind of part of our group. And the hope was that we could help Joey, I guess, be a better student. And so I remember one day uh, in kindergarten, right after lunch, we put our mats away and we're going to get ready to get into this afternoon project which was just coloring a page and so i remember sitting there all excited i had this blank page i knew exactly i was trying to figure out how i'm going to make this thing come to life and i had shauna who sat on the right of me and she her parents must have been rich because she had this big the big crayola crayon box that had like 64 colors with the crayon sharpener in the back of the box and I had the 12, you know, pack of crayons. And I remember watching Joey and Joey reached in. He had this crumpled up paper bag and it was full of his crayons. And he just carelessly reached into this crumpled up paper bag. Didn't even look to see what color it was that he touched, pulled out the first color and just started scribbling all over his page. And I was horrified <laughs> and I was thinking, you are disrespecting every line on that page. And we kind of got on Joey for that because he was so, he was acting so differently from us. And, uh, you know, I think a lot about Joey and I could, now I know looking back at how he was acting late, what I didn't say was that later on that day, after we all kind of got on Joey for not doing it the way we thought, then Joey acted out and got in a fight with a classmate in kindergarten and Joey was punished. And I look back on that and I thought, yeah, I could tell Joey had a very rough family life. And I just felt bad that, you know, because we didn't think Joey was doing it right. We kind of, you know, we potentially could have beat that artist out of him. You know, some of the best artists in the world don't play by the rules. Joey could have been the next Jackson Pollock or Andy Warhol. We'll never know because we never gave joey that three feet that he needed to be whoever he was and that's the shame of it is that we do that a lot is because people experience life different from us or say life is different from us we try to exclude them and say no your three feet doesn't matter and so what i encourage kids is understand that you can stand three feet away from a kid 
and you don't have to in you don't have to come into his space one of the biggest challenges i have with schools today is how do we create an environment where the kid with the black lives matter t-shirt and the kid with the make america great again hat can coexist and it's simply you give each other your three feet so because you believe that america is great that has nothing to do with me you know and so i don't have to get into your three feet and if i just allow you to believe whatever you want within your three feet, it really doesn't have to impact me. And if kids can get that down and just say, man, I'm gonna respect you for who you are and how you believe. And you know, we don't have to vote the same. We don't have to shop at the same places. We don't have to love the same types of people. We can just allow each other to be who they wanna be in that three feet. Everything doesn't have to be an argument. And it's such a, and, and this is the thing that people need to understand is that, you know, if, if I believe in, you know, that black life, that black lives matter, that, that group is important. You're never going to convince me <laughs> to put on a red, make America great again hat. And the same, I'm never going to convince the guy with the red hat to side with you know the black lives matter and that's okay we don't have to and we waste a lot of time trying to convince people to think and see things like we do and it's such a waste of time because you're never going to especially if you're not in relationship with those people right there are certain things that are always right and wrong but then there's other things it's your you know it's your decision we don't have to fight about it (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, and quite honestly, I tell people that, again, there's certain things we just shouldn't talk about. So we're a multicultural family. We've had red and yellow, black and white, all in the house at the same time. Um, And I know with my brown boys specifically, I worry about as they get older, um, them being out in public, will it be safe for them to wear hoodies? Can they have squirt guns? You know, stuff that normal people shouldn't have to worry about. Yeah, and so, yeah, which, which is a shame. But that's kind of part of our culture as families of color. And so I married a black woman. We have two black boys. Uh, One's 23, one's 19. Uh, And you just hope they remember what you're telling them when they are pulled over. Uh, And that's really scary for me because I know for one, I have a friend who was a cop. And so the tactics that police are taught they use to their advantage. So oftentimes when you're pulled over, they become very dramatic, very, they're kind of rushing you and yelling. And what that does is it catches you off guard. So now, and there's been studies shown that when you're fearful or just shocked, your IQ goes way down. And so they use that as an advantage. So my fear is, okay, so I'm telling my sons, when you get pulled over, you know, hands on the steering wheel, no sudden moves, don't move until you tell the officer what you're going to do. Can I reach and, and get my registration out of the glove box? 
Um, another, another good thing to do is to roll down all the windows because in this is tough for younger people, but what you want to do is put the officer at ease. So by rolling down all the windows, it lets them see inside the car. If there's someone there, they can see them. Or if there's no one there, they can see them. The hope is that that will put them at ease. And so they will come at you at a different way. Um, if it's at night, what you want to do is turn on the dome light so they can easily see inside the car again, hoping to, to just kind of keep things calm. Um, but I've told my boys, that is not the time to argue curbside justice. We can do that at home. But right now, your only task when you're pulled over is do whatever they tell you and don't argue and do whatever you got to do to come home to me and your mother. Because I can't, I, I will, I am not able to withstand being the next hashtag. I can't be the next Teron Martin's father. And so do whatever you got to do to come home to us. And the fear is, man, in that adrenaline filled moment when someone's yelling at you and you're just trying to get your bearings, yeah. will they remember that? And even, and those are really tough kind of ideas to think about as a father, you know, raising two boys of color because man, just the whole thing with, uh, you know, that just happened recently, he seemed to do everything they told him to do. He complied and he didn't make it home. So yeah, it kind of had a loss. You just, you want to tell your kids the right thing, but you know, so the rules keep changing, which is frustrating. Yeah. I had one of those moments last week, adrenaline filled moments. The grill caught on fire and mm. the fire went down the little hose and the top of the propane tank was on fire. And I was home alone oh my with Hudson, who's 12. And then one of his sisters, and his little brother and my mind went totally blank and I could not think of what to do and Hudson's yelling at me he was calm and cool <laughs> and he's yelling at me to get the fire extinguished and I was totally <laughs> out of it so I, I yeah I understand what when you're in one of those situations you don't know what you're gonna do yeah yeah and and oftentimes what you'll hear after incidents like this is, well, if he didn't resist arrest, he'd be fine. Just don't resist. But again, when someone's choking you and you think you're dying, I don't know how I would respond in that incident. You know, like I go over this a lot where I'm like, okay, so I am now in that position where someone's, you know, knee is on my throat and I can't breathe. How do I get out of that situation? Do I just go limp? And I'm thinking, okay, hopefully that's probably the best way to handle that. But I have never been in that situation where I think I'm about to die. I don't know how I would respond to that. And I'm kind of thinking instinct would tell you to fight with whatever you could to get that breath. Yeah. This is such a, this is probably the hardest topic we've ever covered on the podcast. So 
it's even just hard for me to vocalize. Like, I want to do what I can, but I don't want to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Just show up. I, I think just just that quiet presence means a lot. Because, yeah, it just, right now, it just seems like Black lives don't matter. And we just need people to go, yeah, they do. We understand. Yeah. And And I will say, they did some things right in Minnesota. And I think that's come from, you know, watching other cities kind of deal with this same thing. Um, it was very uncharacteristic for them to fire the four police officers right away. So you knew something was going on, that they took that action so quickly. And I thought that was good. I thought they condemned their actions right away. Um, the frustrating thing is that they should have followed that up with arrests. And that's what's blown this whole thing out of the water. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I, it, again, it's just so frustrating to be here. And if you look at America's history, it's pretty similar. Um, this happens. It used to happen every 20 or 30 years. So it happened not only in Detroit in 67, but it was out in LA. There was a whole lot of riots in 67 and 68. And then we had a long period of time where nothing happened. And then we had the Rodney King incident in 93. And then we went to 2014 where nothing happened and then Ferguson happened. But now in the last 10 years, they keep happening more frequently. I don't think it's just America though. I have people, friends in other countries and they say it's like that there too. Yeah. We've just gotten this race and racism yeah. thing down to a science. I mean, we, the country was just built up. That's part of our DNA is why it was built or how it was built. The Indians. And so, <laughs> too. yeah, I think we, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. On the backs of other people. Uh, it, yeah. And so, and, and until we come to terms with that, that, you know, you brutalized and took advantage of, of at least <laughs> two races. And until you kind of make amends for that, I don't know if we'll ever get out of this. So what would be the best way to make amends? Say it happened. Like I can remember the very first president who actually spoke up and addressed the, the, just the horrible, just everything horrible about slavery was Bill Clinton, which was right. years after it happened. And I remember thinking, wow, that was powerful for me that a president stood up and said, you know what? We did you wrong. Yeah. And I think that's what people are waiting for. And it, it's so frustrating now because we've gotten the exact opposite of that. Like you said, people just want to know that you are listening to them and you're yeah. aware of their needs. Yeah. And I think that's what, Everyone always asks me, well, why did you write the book? And initially, I thought I wrote this book to kind of just help families like ours, you know, white families raising children of color through adoption. Um, but I was very purposeful in how I wrote a book about race, because I wanted people to understand my experience as a person of color in this country 
and how I saw race growing up and how that impacted me. Um, and so the real reason why I wrote that book was because I just wanted to be heard. And if we could just get that, that's, that's at the core of this whole race and racism conversation, which is just take the time to hear someone who's different from you. Yeah. So if someone wants to find you, where can they find you at? They can find me at my website, which is the name of the book, Growing Up Black in White.com, or you can find it under my name, KevinHoffman.com, and Hoffman is one F and two N's. So it's H-O-F-M-A-N-N. Thank you so much. You are a great communicator. Um, I oh, listened you. to part of your book, and I've read some stuff you've written. It's great. Um, so thank you so much for coming on today. We had lots of challenges with our sound, but you've persevered through with us. <laughs> Appreciate it. No, no, we had a good conversation. I think, yeah, we need to have yeah. more conversations like this. Wow, guys, that was a really tough and heavy subject. This was probably the hardest podcast we've done because I don't even know how to ask the questions or what to say. But that's one thing that we're committed to, not shying away from things that make us uncomfortable or stretch us. Because if you're always comfortable, you're probably not growing. I said that I grew up as a little kid in a church with probably an equal amount of black and white people, and I was in an Asian American family. But I really didn't start becoming aware of how different life was for people of color until I was about 25. And Keith and I were living in California going to a multicultural church. You know, as a kid, you're not as aware of what's really going on. And as a young adult, hearing the stories of our pastor talking about how life was different for him began the process of opening my eyes. I have another dear friend, Honore, who is one of the kindest men I know who, in his own way, has helped me see this struggle differently. And I feel like today Kevin has helped me become even more aware of what my African-American brothers and sisters experience every single day. I love all my friends of color, but today I understand them better. And I hope that you learned something today, and maybe you can approach the future with a different perspective. This is not something that can be fixed quickly. There's no easy answer. It's a process, but like Kevin said, we need heroes, and you guys can be the heroes of your generation.